Well, if you're joining us today for the first time, you know that we're just kind of in this very mini-series in Proverbs 3. We're calling it Preventative Medicine, a Prescription from Proverbs 3. And we're doing that because if you know anything about Proverbs, if you know about how they work, if you know about the wisdom that they're designed to impart, you know that they're done for a couple reasons. One is to promote our spiritual health, and the other is to prevent spiritual disease. And last week I I used the analogy of somebody who's pre-diabetic. In fact, I have a member of my extended family who was diagnosed not too long ago as pre-diabetic. And diabetes is a serious disease. But the good news is, if it's type 2, you don't necessarily need to get that disease if you do preventative things. And specifically, if you change your diet, meaning less sugar, and increase your exercise. You do those two things, and you can maintain your health, and you can prevent the disease. And then, so we looked at Proverbs 3 to look at a variety of, a series of sayings by Solomon, whose scripture says, no one was wiser than Solomon, looking at what he said, so that we would promote our spiritual health, so that we would prevent spiritual disease. And if you're here, you know that we went through a series of three particular Proverbs. And the way that Proverbs works, when we read them, you saw that Proverbs starts with something we're supposed to do, some kind of command, some way that we were to obey the, what the Lord is saying. And then it's followed by a blessing that he gives us. So we do something, and then we receive a benefit. And you see that even in the first two verses of, of Proverbs 3. Uh, first two verses say, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So something we're supposed to do, which is not to forget God's teaching, but to actually keep his commands in our heart. And then what's the benefit? That they would prolong our life many years and bring us peace and prosperity. So that's how the Proverbs are structured. That's how they work in our lives to promote health and to prevent spiritual disease. Now, as I was talking about that, I actually have to walk back a comment that I made last week because in, the, in applying that to us at Abundant Life, I said that our Safari Kids ministry is very intentional, very serious about uh, making sure that we are teaching our kids God's commands, that they're in the hearts of our children, and we don't just do things like watch Veggie Tales. We're all about reading the scripture. And as I was saying that, one of our staff members was walking a class of safari kids up the stairs to actually view Veggie Tales. So I have to apologize for that. I can only say that that must be a summer program, because now that we're rolling forward into the fall, trust me, we're all about the scripture. Uh, I don't know where Veggie Tales is going to stay, but... uh, It was just a temporary thing. So anyway, I need to walk that back and just keep faith with you guys. So we're going to pick it up this week really on just one particular set of, one particular proverb in Proverbs 3, and that's verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray because it's pretty powerful, and I, I want to make sure that we're not missing out on what God has for each of us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs 3. I'm really going to read just verses 11 and 12. Beginning verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. This is our focus for today. Let's, let's give God praise and let's ask him to open our minds. God, heavenly father, Lord Jesus, you're our counselor, you're our guide, you're the lover of our souls, you have a hope 
for us a plan and a purpose. Would you open our minds to hear what you would say to each of us this morning? That we would know you as that loving Father who does things for our benefit and for your glory. Lord, help us to apply, even as we're hearing, call to mind areas that need this word applied, that we might be better followers of you and to know your love and connection and, and that depth of relationship all the days of our life. So thank you, Lord, for this time. We give it to you. Make me the channel of your wisdom, your words. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So you look at just this proverb, you look at this, and it's interesting. You know the pattern that we were just talking about? God asks us to do something, and then he gives us a blessing. In this case, he's actually asking us or instructing us not to do something. The things we're supposed to do are framed in the negative. We are not to despise, what? The discipline of the Lord. Don't despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke. And what's the benefit? Because if we don't do that, then we'll actually know him to be who he is in our life, and who he is in this world, which is a God of love. And we will know that we actually belong to his family. That's the connection between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter. So don't do something, and if we don't do something, we'll actually receive the benefit. Don't do what? Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Despise is a strong word. When you despise something, it's this visceral gut reaction to what's going on. You say, I hate this. I want this to stop. This has to end. And don't resent his rebuke. That's a little more prolonged. That's a little bit more of a steadied, purposeful, like I am against this situation, or I am against this person, or I'm against this thing that happened in my life. It's every time you think of it, just you're aware of this hostility towards it. That's resentment. And Solomon's saying, don't do that when the Lord is disciplining you. So what is it about God's discipline that we actually have to be warned about against resenting it or saying, I hate this? I mean, it's God. Wouldn't we naturally embrace it? What is, what is he, what's he alluding to? Now we actually have the advantage, and we're going to turn to that, that this verse is explained in more detail in the New Testament. So if you've got your New Testament with you, turn with me to Hebrews 12. Because Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to a persecuted church. He's writing to a, a group of churches. Some think they were house churches that were just being run up one side and down the other by the Greco-Roman culture that was not on board with who Jesus was or this sect or this cult as they called it. The Christians at that time were actually called pagans because they weren't part of the prevailing religion of the day. And so they're being persecuted, their property is getting confiscated, they're being insulted, they're being slandered, they're being imprisoned. Stuff is coming against them big time. And it's not for no reason, therefore, that they're getting dispirited, that they're getting run down, that they're like, Lord, where are you in the midst of that? And so, so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them in chapter 12, I'm going to read verse 3, and we're going to go all the way to, through verse 11. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry about it. I think the words will appear on the screen, but just listen. Listen, you'll hear the word discipline rather a lot, and just see how it's being explained and how it's being unfolded by the writer. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And 
Have you, and have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and now he quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our own good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Amen. So Hebrews is unpacking what we're learning in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Notice some things about discipline that's being talked about. First of all, it's framed out of this relationship of a parent to a child, of a father to a son or father to a daughter. It's this idea, as a parent and you're disciplining a child, you're actually training them up in the way that they should go. The word for discipline is more a sense of training here than it is of punishment. We think, I will discipline you. Oh no, here comes the punishment. Here comes the night, as my dad used to say to us when he was disciplining us. And we would say, oh no. And we would try to run or hide, and then we'd hear steps come, his footsteps coming up that stairway. We had no carpet, so it sounded a lot worse. It was amplified. And I mean, if I could throw my younger brother in front of him faster than that, then I was you know, just that much far ahead of him. So we all got disciplined in certain ways, and with that comes sort of a harshness or a punishment to it. But that's not what's meant here. It's more the training. It's the kind of thing that you, you tell your child, you know, the child's part of your family, so this is what we value. This is what it means to be part of the Gorin family. And believe me, I was told a lot of things about what it meant to be part of the Gorin family. This is what we value. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. Um, a parent will make sure their child is protected, kept from life-threatening harm. It's why a parent will grab a young toddler's hand or a young child's hand as they cross the street. Because that child is not old enough to appreciate the danger of traffic. But a parent knows that. A parent is watching out for their child. A child doesn't know the benefit of character, but later on as they grow up and they see the fruits of that, they realize that when they were told to be honest, when they were told to... Uh, go the extra mile when they're told these things that essentially come from the scriptures, because that is real wisdom, by the way, then they see the fruit that that bears in their life. They see the fruit that that bears in their career, in their relationships. And so a parent is raising up the child in terms of character, in terms of values, in terms of protection. That's what's meant by discipline. We are being trained by our Heavenly Father. Because why? Because we belong to His family. What does it mean to be part of God's family? Well, I will show you, says God the Father. I will protect you. And, and we need to take that to heart. We need to appreciate that. That's what's going on here. In the context of Hebrews and here, it's not only training like a parent would train their child, but God is using the sufferings, the challenges, the things that come at us from this world to shape us, 
to show us what's valuable, to show us how he's protecting us. And so it has just a wider sense of between a parent and child. So he'll let whatever is going on in your life, if it's going on in your life, he's allowing it for a purpose. And if you allow him to do it, he will allow you, he will help you to be trained by it. Why? So that you will participate in his holiness, to be more like him, to be understanding what it means to have real relationship, a depth of relationship with him in this life. There will be a time in the next life when all that process will be completed. But that peace, that tranquility that comes from being trained by challenges, hardships, is what he wants for us in this life. So far from being something to punish us, far from being something that just comes out of some weird place, it's really meant to be an expression of his love and an expression of our, that tells us that we belong to his family. That's what is the discipline. But the reason we would resent it, possibly, the reason we would say, I don't like this, I hate this, to despise it, in other words, is because, let's really be honest, at times it has a very harsh and difficult aspect to it. Sometimes that happens because of the prolonged nature of what's going on. You might say, oh man, I can handle this for a little bit, but I don't know if I can go one more day. I don't know if, I mean, Lord, you should have called time on that thing a long time ago. And some of you are just weary about the, the ordeal or the challenge that you've had to face, not for months, but for years. You're like, Lord, can I just get to the end of this? Can I just, can, can I be done with this? Can I crawl to the ring and just tap somebody else to come fight my fight? You guys remember, anybody watch All-Star Wrestling as a kid? Now I'm going back a little bit for some of you. But in the Bay Area, they used to have All-Star Wrestling. And they had Haystack Calhoun and Ray Stevens and Pedro and Pepper Gomez. I might be dating myself. But it was on Channel 2, and you could watch this. And it was, you know, this, it was mostly entertainment. I have no idea if this stuff was real. But it was before MMA. I mean, it was pretty, pretty light compared to mixed martial arts. But the, the big bout was when you'd have two guys going at it, Haystack and Ray Stevens. And they're going against... Pedro and Pepper, and, and one of these guys, Pedro and Pepper, just killing Ray Stevens. They are beating him up, you know, Ray Stevens barely getting up, and somebody crashes a chair on the cross of his back, and he's sprawled over there. And then on his elbows, just dragging himself to the end of the corner where he could just, he could touch Haystack Calhoun, who jumps into the ring. And then some of us feel that way with the stuff that we're going through. It's like, oh, Lord, I'm just on my elbows now. I'm on fumes. Those of you who are runners, you know, you know, running with friends, like you're on fumes. You don't even know how you're going to get going. That is how oftentimes in the big stuff that the hardships, the discipline, the disciplinary suffering is some, what some commentators call this. That's how that operates in some of our lives. And it's not by accident. It is part of God's plan. But the reason that we don't resent it, the reason that we don't despise it, is because the stakes are high. If we don't see God behind it, then we will wonder what he's up to. And if, if we don't see him behind it, then we can lose and fall away from our relationship and connection with him. To see this proverb, the, the, the thing that's promoting health here is to see God behind it. It prevents the disease of isolation and of separation from our Heavenly Father. Is that a real disease? It absolutely is. Some of you may know people that once were on fire for the Lord, but they seem to have cooled. They seem to be walking away. Now when you ask them about their church, they say, well, honestly, 
haven't really been in quite a while. If you start to probe that a little bit more deeply, you, it's not uncommon to find that there was some issue, some event, some hardship, some disciplinary suffering that came at them, and they didn't see God behind it, and they didn't know how to handle it, and they didn't turn to him. And as a result, their faith is greatly challenged. They're kind of in neutral corners. The seriousness of this, seriousness of this disease, I think, is borne by Matthew 24, amongst other texts. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 9, Jesus is telling his disciples about the end times. He's saying, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and to, put, and to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What's he saying? He's saying that because of the pressure of hardship, because of the persecution that comes against the church, some of those who profess a faith in Jesus Christ will actively fall away from that if such a thing were possible. And we're not going to get into can you lose your salvation. All, suffice to say that there are people who are professing the Lord according to, to Jesus here, to his disciples, that when pressure really gets tough, when hardship really gets firmed up and comes directly at them, they're saying that their love for the Lord is growing cold. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. So if we see what God is up to when he allows hardships and challenges and difficulties, it'll prevent us from being potentially one of those people. You may say, well, I'm not one of those people. I'm like, great, God, part of the reason you're not one of those now is that perhaps you are learning from the discipline, from the challenges and issues that you're facing, and you're learning to take them before the Lord, and you're asking for his help. Don't let the things that come against you cause you to drift away from the Lord. Some of you know, Vicki, my wife, is a uh, she's part of a chaplaincy ministry at one of the hospitals in the area. And so they go at uh, regular intervals and see if they can uh, talk to patients, pray for them. And not too long ago, she talked to a lady who was truly kind of uh, devastated by disease. It was plain to see it. As she just looked at her, she sat in the hospital. And as Vicki was preparing to pray for her, she said, Are you a believer? And the woman shrugged her shoulders and said, Why would I be a believer? As if to say, Look, can I believe with all this, this is going on in my life right now? Some of us as believers are saying the same thing. How can I believe that God really loves me when I'm in the midst of this kind of thing? But not only is God allowing this for his good purposes, he's actually allowing this because he wants to increase your capacity to serve him, to glorify him, to be a blessing to others, and to experience him with a depth and a fullness that none of us have achieved at this point. There is a direct correlation between the trials, the challenges, and the sufferings in our life and the fruit and the blessing and the benefit that we experience now and in the honor in the life to come. That's just the way it is. That's God's economy. And so far from, you know, apologizing for this, these things, he's saying, I want to train you up with them. I want to grow you. I want you to be every bit that man, that woman that I've designed you to be. It's like, doesn't any parent or grandparent want to see the best out of their child? Don't you think about that? Don't you work for that if you have that opportunity? When I think about that, I think of the example of, uh, of Wolfgang Mozart. Some of you know Mozart is one of the greatest composers of all time. 
the highlight of his career, late 18th century, beautiful operas, beautiful concertos, multiple instruments, just this gifted, tremendously talented kid. If you know something about his life, you know that he was a prodigy. At an early age, he was already demonstrating this amazing musical ability. He was a marvelous composer. What is lesser known is that his father, Leopold, was also a composer. And it achieved some notoriety locally. He was part of a, he was sort of the assistant conductor or choir master at one of the royal courts in Austria. So he had a little cred. He's, he's playing the piano. He's teaching violin. He's doing this thing. But as he saw his son with this giftedness, he began to spend more and more of his time training his son in the proficiency of music, not only shaping his talent through lessons and through any number of other giving him opportunities, but also shaping his character to make sure it's one thing to play well, it's another thing to be able to gain access into the courts of Europe. And so he didn't want his son's sort of rambunctiousness to undermine the talent. In fact, his goal was to see young Wolfgang become celebrated as a composer, celebrated as a musician at the top of his game. And so he subsumed his own career. He only got as high as assistant choir master, assistant director, because he was traveling. He took Wolfgang to one capital after another and showed off his son, trained him up in this way that he might see his boy go to the full potential that he believed he was capable of. And by God's grace, at one point, the great Joseph Haydn, also an amazing composer of his day, said this to Leopold about his son Wolfgang. He said, before God... And as an honest man, I tell you that your son is the greatest composer known to me, either in person or by name. What a delight Leopold must have been thinking. Can you imagine that to be told by Haydn? I mean, this isn't like being told by some groupie, somebody at the back of the, you know, at the, behind the stage or something. This is Joseph Haydn saying that your son is the greatest composer. When you're raising up kids, you want the best for them. God wants, he just delights in us like Leopold delighted in him. He wants us to reach the potential. We may not see that in ourselves. Did David see it? No, he's out there, past, you know, he's shepherding sheep. Did Saul see it? No, he's hiding in the baggage train. Did Peter see it? He's just fishing. Who saw God's plan for them when God planted, even before he made the planet, even before he created them? No one. That's part of God's plan. So as he's disciplining us, as he's moving us, as he's shaping it, he's doing it that we might be a tremendous blessing to others, might bring him real glory, far more than we can think or imagine. So when you're going, he's using hardships to do it, he's using suffering to do it, so when you're going through that, whose perspective are you using? Are you trying to think of these things, evaluate them through your own What's your perspective on your troubles? If I'm not going to Jesus, then I got my own thinking. And what's my thinking? It's stuff like, why me? You know, why not those other guys? Give them the tough assignments. Why do I have to go to the front lines? Officer, other people are speeding more than me. Why'd you pull me over? We have this why me mentality. Or another one is, it's not fair. I mean, I have been working hard. I, there are people that are far worse Christians than I am. That's just, you know, if I'm really honest with you, Lord, but just between us, we'll talk. There are people far worse Christians than I. They don't go to church as much as I do. They can't quote a scripture. I don't think they give. I'm watching. I don't see them giving. I don't think they're doing this stuff. 
that a real Christian does. But you're giving me all this grief. You're allowing me to hear all kinds of negativity. You're, you're allowing me to experience headwinds. Why are you doing that to me? Does that sound familiar? If you're in the Bible reading plan that this church is doing, you're smack in the middle of Job right now. This is Job's lament. This is basically lots of chapters, but Job is essentially saying, Lord, it's not fair. And he has a case in one sense. It's like, I am righteous. He, by, by the standards of the day, he was top drawer. He was at the top of his game. He was praying for his kids. He worshiped the Lord. He defended the uh, defenseless. He was a righteous man. And that's his case. I'm a righteous man. Why are such horrendous things, horrendous, loses his family, loses his livelihood, loses his reputation, loses his health, loses his friends? He says, in so many words, even the riffraff of, of, the, of this, my town are spitting at me and insulting me. How did I fall from such a great height? And he says, Lord, this is only because you, you're, you did this, and I don't understand why. It is not fair. Is that where some of you are right now? You've done your part. You've put in your time. You've prayed for many people and seen answers to prayer. And yet this is happening to you. What's God up to? So why me? Or it's not fair? Or maybe I am to blame. God's punishing me. So God will let, it, let us experience the consequences of our disobedience sometimes. Not all the time. He's so gracious and merciful. How many of us have been like, thank you, Lord. Man, I'll slow down now to 65. Thank you. He, just, he was going after somebody else. So sometimes it is like that, and we just know that the Lord's grace. He could have busted us. Could have brought us low, but he did not do that. And so we're thankful. But other times we get to experience the consequences all out of a sense of his love. But sometimes I hear people say, oh, I'm getting punished by God. Or even worse, I'm cursed. My family's cursed. Really? God does not visit the sins of the father on the children in terms of punishment. But the, the heart of a parent, or the heart that's in a family, if it is not healed, if it is selfish, if, if it is sinful, that heart, those values, if you will, those sinful values can be transferred one generation to the next. That's not a curse so much as it's a spiritual power to be broken, and you can break it. There's no such thing as a curse that can come upon a righteous person, somebody who's in the name of Jesus. But if you're feeling that, then you've got to get together with Sister Hill when she returns, and you need to get some prayer. You need to get, because we do that, we pray for healing. We pray against spiritual uh, forces that would come against you. And those can be dispelled and broken up with prayer. So if you're feeling like God's never giving you a break because of some kind of genealogy, some history, something that you got going, and believe me, this kind of folk folklore gets into families. If that's in your family, let me tell you, there's nothing made in all creation, including any principality or any spiritual authority, that God doesn't have authority over Go to Jesus, bring it before him, saying, this is ending today by your grace. So don't, don't say you're cursed. Don't say he's punishing you. God is allowing these things for your good. Get God's perspective on it. So why me? When you ask why me, if you ask him that question, listen to his answer. Lord, why, why did you give me that challenging boss? 
And he says, because I made you for this specific assignment, I know exactly what I'm doing in your life. I know he's working your nerves. I know he's not fair. I know he's playing favorites. I know he's promoting people over you. I know that he's dogging you out. And every time you talk about Christianity, it seems to get worse. But you know what I'm doing in your life? I'm not so concerned about your promotion as I am about you glorifying me. I want you to grow in patience. I want you to grow in love. I want you to practice forgiveness. Because in these things, I delight Who is the child of God? Is it the one who lends to somebody who lends back to them? No, it's the one that lends without any expectation of getting a return back. Who's the child of God? Is it the one that, you know, isn't it the one who forgives when they've been offended? The one who blesses when they're cursed? Yeah, that's the one who God says, that's my boy. That's my girl. And so when that's going on at work, that's his specific assignment that you can shine for him. You may not be honored and glorified now, but there will come a time when that will happen. So that's my assignment. I know exactly what I'm doing, he says. I know what I'm doing in your life. As you go through seasons of life, there are people more and more that Vicki and I are are talking to who are dealing with parents that are growing older. They're, They're aging. They're getting to a place where they're less able to take care of themselves. And that can be hard just on the face of it. Health issues, dealing with insurance, dealing with paperwork, dealing with the, the limited finances that often go with that. And to top it all off, they're not, oftentimes parents aren't nearby. They're across the country or halfway across the country. And you're like, and to make it even really bad, they don't even listen to you. It's like, mom, dad, you need to do this. And they're like, I don't know, I'm not doing it. But this will help you. I've been helping myself for a long time. But you can't help yourself anymore. That's why I'm on the phone to you. So we go through these things, and they can be tremendously frustrating, dealing with parents. But what's God saying? No, God says, this is a great opportunity to honor me by honoring your mother and father. You glorify me when you you are along them patiently. You know, and I know you don't have the resources, but you get to discover that I'm the God who provides I know that they're dealing with illness, but I will give them a measure of healing. I'm the God who heals. You're learning things about God. You're learning things about yourself. That's the assignment. I'm not making any mistakes, God says to you in the midst of that. But you will see something about me that you do not know. You will learn to obey in the midst of that suffering. Because that's what allows us to be children of God. That's what allows us to be Christ-like. Just a quick digression. You know, in the earlier part of Hebrews, the writer says this about Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life, I'm in chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Verse 8, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God is teaching his very own son, Jesus, what it means to obey by allowing him to go to the cross on our behalf. If God did that for his very own son, will he not also teach us the beauty and joy of obedience that he might get out of us what he's planned in us from the very beginning? He used Jesus to bring us salvation. He is using your life to bring real blessing, real fruit in ways that you can't think or imagine even now. But it comes out of our obedience. It comes out of our submission to the discipline that we're undergoing. 
So get God's perspective on these things. I know that you're going through seasons of life. I know you've got aging parents. I'm not making a mistake. I know what I'm doing, he says to you parents. When I gave you that wonderful child, that special child, the one who may not have the same experiences or the same opportunities that you see other kids having, but I gave that child just to you because I knew only you could love him as I need you to love that child. Only you could do it. Only you could have that patience and that endurance, that fortitude to go day after day, to be alongside, to even though you want a break and you're asking for one, I will provide people to help you, but only you would I entrust with that precious assignment. That's how much I love you, to privilege you with that. How much did he love Jesus? To privilege him with the great joy for the joy set before him he endured the cross the joy of actually being god's instrument of salvation in smaller ways he privileges us you have to see the harder it is the more the privilege the harder it is the more the provision the harder it is the more god is there now you cannot look at other people's circumstances and send other people's assignments and go lord why didn't i get that one Because God has shaped each of us uniquely for the assignment that he's given us, for the season that we're in. We dare not look around and try to compare. One of my mentors early on in my life said, comparison never leads to the truth. And he was right. How come I'm not like him? How come I didn't get that assignment? Why me? Why not? That's the way the world thinks. Get God's perspective on his assignment for you. And know that no matter how challenging it is, he is there yet still. And that he will honor you. Remember that Peter, when he talks about this, the, the trials, you know, these sufferings that have come onto you. You've had to suffer in all kinds of trials, he says in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says, these have come on you so that your faith, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed any assignment that we've been given there will be a time if we are faithful where we'll be able to thank God for his sustaining grace and he will say look at how faithful you were well done good and faithful servant well done with that assignment well done that you tended that part of the garden that I gave you that's what he's saying so get God's perspective on it have what's called a growth mindset When things happen, when hardships come, when you have to deal with disciplinary sufferings, what's your mindset? Is it a growth mindset or is it kind of what's called a fixed mindset? What do I mean by that? There's a woman, a professor at Stanford of psychology. She has the Eaton Chair of Psychology. Her name is Carol Dweck, and she's done a lot of research about when people are learning, when kids are learning especially. She started this over 20 years ago. She noticed that she would take kids and 10-year-olds and put them in a room one after another, and give them a series of puzzles to do, how would they deal with the puzzles? And what she noticed is, you can imagine some kids, the puzzles would get harder and harder to do. Some kids, I'm sure, got frustrated and like, oh, I can't do this, and maybe a little anxious about doing it. But she noticed that there were some children that the more challenging the puzzles got, the more excited they were. Like, wow, I am learning so much about how to do puzzles. Can I do one that's harder? Like, really? Harder? Yes, harder. And these kids would just be delighted at the opportunity and the privilege that was before them to actually learn. And she called that a growth mindset. And that was as opposed to a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset says, I can't change. It won't be any different. I am who I am. What is is what is. 
And it's just the way it's going to be. A growth mindset says, I can learn from this. God's not done with me yet. Carol Dweck is just talking about something that Scripture already says exists. Jesus said, learn from me. She's just discovering that principle, that when we learn from God, we have that attitude. We need to have the attitude of always learning. Somebody else in the field said, there's no sort of success or failures, but there's learners and non-learners. That's the growth mindset. When I have something that comes against me, am I learning what God wants me to learn? Or am I, do I have that fixed mindset and just say, that's it? And I don't mean to trivialize stuff that happens to us because I'm very aware that some of us have been having to wrestle with some really serious, deep, prolonged issues. Is God in that? Is there discipline that's going on in that? Is he shaping you through that? When your world has absolutely been shattered because of the death of a spouse or a child or the loss of a job or a career that you've enjoyed for years and that's been brought to an end in the world that you, as you knew it and you defined it has now been changed irrevocably. And let's admit, that is, that's what's happened. We're not trying to put a spiritual gloss on that. That is what happened. There's a time for grief. There's a time to process that. There's a time to, those of you that have friends in your life that are going through that, be alongside of them. You don't have to say anything. You, just, you can just come alongside of them and be God's presence. Grief is a natural and, and God-given way to, to handle those kinds of things when your world has been taken down, when your world has been shattered. There's a time for every season under heaven, says Ecclesiastes. And so I don't want to shortchange that. I don't want to say you just have a growth mindset and no you let God take you through that process but be open to the time where that shattered world that you had now God is leading you to new worlds to discover when God is putting new people in your life and new opportunities I don't know what that is for you but I don't want anybody to kind of get stuck in that place of just that fixed mindset It'll never be, I'll never be the same. You won't be the same, but it doesn't mean your life is over. I'll never have a productive relationship. Oh yeah, you will. God can't use me anymore because of what I did. I shattered my own world. That is definitely not true. Uh, let's go through it. David, Solomon, you know, Peter. How many more biblical characters, biblical people do I have to talk about before we realize that if you even shattered your own world, God's not done with you. There's a new world that he wants you to discover, to understand. He was with you in the old world. He is with you in the new world. He's leading you from one to the other. The question is, will you walk with him? Will you follow after him? Will you say, Lord, show me something. Help me to learn. Help me to get out of myself. Those are the big things in life. But you know what? I want to make this kind of, this application of growth mindset sort of every day, if you will. I, I want us to realize that there are some things that, that come against all of us that seem little, that seem trivial almost, but we have to take them seriously. What was the stuff that all of us tend to suffer from today? Um, here's one example. What about taking offense? You know, we're one of the most easily offended people as Americans that I can think of. We're offended when somebody cuts us off. They don't signal. We're offended when somebody has 15 items and the 10 item or less checkout. We're offended when somebody doesn't say something just the way we wanted to say it so that we would say, oh yes, thank you for that nugget of wisdom, just what I needed to hear. Instead, they sort of blurted out and we still needed to hear it, but we're offended by the way they wrapped it up. 
and the fact they just put it in a paper bag. We are so easily offended. Half of social media is going because of offense. If there wasn't any offense in this country, there would be far fewer tweets, wouldn't there? Some of you are wearing a Fitbit. If you know what a Fitbit is, you wear it around your wrist and it keeps track of how many paces, how many steps you walk in the course of a day. And then you look at it and you go, wow, 10,000, I'm healthy, I get my insurance lowered. What if we had an offend bit? It's just, you know, you wear it around your wrist and every time you got offended, it counted. You're like, wow, just between home and church, 36. That's great. We're just really people that are easily offended. And it's so common that we just think, okay, well, you stepped on, you know, my toe, I'm going to step on yours, or you worked my nerve, or you pushed my button. And the hard part about this is whose buttons are we pushing? We're pushing the ones nearest and dearest to us. She said that to me, I'm going to say that to her. She said, oh, you didn't say that, really? You're, you're going to go there? Okay, I'm going to go there. Now my relatives are being brought into this. Okay, let's get your family tree out. So it just escalates bit by bit. One offense leads to another offense. And John Bevere calls that the bait of Satan. He wrote a book called The Bait of Satan. And he says, uh, quoting uh, Luke 17:1, he says, Offenses are bound to come, by, by, but woe unto him through who they come. The word for offenses is the Greek word scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. It's something that just like, whoa, that shouldn't be. That's what a scandal is. This is nuts. This is crazy. So, but it has also the connotation of being bait in a trap. If you've ever had to deal with rats in your house or your apartment, you get a trap and you have to put some bait on it. And that attracts the rat and then the, the, rat, and then the trap is sprung. His point is that offense is the bait of Satan. It's what, bait, it's what Satan, the enemy, puts into the trap so that we would be captured by it. So what is that trap that gets sprung? It is the trap of division and disunity and dissension. It's what comes between a husband and a wife. It's what comes between kids and parents. It's what comes between colleagues on a project team. It's what comes between nations. It's what comes between ministry leaders. That is the bait of Satan. That is why it is serious, serious business. It's so common that we can overlook it. It's so common that we actually look for ways to compartmentalize it just as a survival strategy. But God wants us to actually deal with that. Deal with the offenses that are coming at us. Deal with this stuff rather than just sort of sweep it away. How do I do that? Let's get really practical. The first thing, when, some, when you are offended... What do you do? If it's somebody in, who's a believer, you go Matthew 18 on them. You say, can I just talk to you? If your brother offends you, go to your brother. Talk to him. That's what it says. If, if it's a church matter, you can bring, if they don't hear you, you can bring somebody else and say, can I talk to you? Use I statements. Here's a tip, pastoral tip, validated by numerous psychologists and therapists the world over. Start with an I statement. This is how I heard what you said. This is how I felt when you said that. Not like, you did this, you are, and then some big pronouncement about their worth and character. Don't know. You use I statements. You say, and you're, because you're, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get rid of that bait. You're trying to get rid of the offense. You're trying to make, to preserve the unity. Promote the health of unity. Prevent the disease of dissension. That's what you're trying to do. And so you do that gently. Restore him gently. Paul instructs Timothy, or in Galatians, Paul says, restore the brother who's caught in a sin gently. 
Paul says to Timothy, if somebody's opposing you, come to them gently. Why? Because you don't want to put gasoline on the fire. So go to them, talk to them. But even if they're not a believer, if somebody at work's your neighbor, you still approach them gently, right? Why? Because, as my mom used to say, you get more with sugar than you do with vinegar. A gentle answer, says Proverbs, turns away wrath. It's to a person's credit to overlook a sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. Get in the Proverbs. The Proverbs, as I said, are little snacks, bite-sized uh, servings of God's wisdom that will help you in the moment of whatever you're facing. So go to them. Go to them gently. But as you're doing that, I want you to do a couple things. In the midst of some kind of dissension, some kind of challenge, some kind of issue, you need to ask a couple questions. You, well, you need to first go to God. Very often, when somebody's pushing our button... When we push that button, the shortest distance from what we hear to our mouth, I mean, that's physiologically the shortest line. We heard it, and then it comes out. We hear some insult, and out comes an insult. There's not very much a big distance to travel, is there? What we need to do is interrupt that circuitry and say, I heard it. Lord, how should I deal with it? Lord, what do you want me to think about it? Turn to him and say, Lord, you're in this. The Lord is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He cares about what's going on in each one of our lives. His spirit in us is called the counselor. Lord, what's your counsel right now? How do I deal with that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr for his faith, a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany, was martyred in April of 1945, said this about Jesus as our intercessor. He called him the mediator. And he said, he said this, I love it. He said, Jesus stands between us and God. And for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and things. He's the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, he is the sole mediator in the world. In other words, if you're having an argument with your spouse, you're having a frank exchange of views, as we might say, you think it's just you two, you hope you're not so loud that your neighbor's here, but best you can tell it's just you two right now, uh-uh, not just you two. Jesus very much in that room. The question is, are you going to turn to him? Are you going to say in that moment, men, I want to speak this to you. You take the lead, even if you're doing most of the shouting. You got to go, wait a minute, Lord, I'm, just, I'm calling the time on this conversation, and let's just go to the Lord. Let me just go to the Lord. I'm going to leave this room right now, and I'm going to go to the Lord. Believe me, your wife will think you are wonderful in that very moment. Thank you for leaving and going to the Lord. On both counts, thank you for leaving and going to the Lord. But please come back with a renewed mind and with God's purpose in his heart so that we can work through this. Yeah. So don't let it come in your ear and out your mouth. Instead, take it to the Lord. Let him mediate. He's there. The cross of Christ stands between you and every human relationship. The cross of Christ stands between you and every situation that you're facing. The power of God that comes from his cross, that resurrection power symbolized by that, is in every one of your situations. Every part of his disciplinary suffering, every part of every circumstance that you're facing that you, can't, you don't think you can go through another minute of, his cross, his power is there. So, Lord, help me. What are you saying? And so then, Lord, show me what you want me to know about you in that situation, that you're sufficient for my needs. Show me what you want me to see. When you've got somebody always pushing the same button, you've got to disconnect that button. God will help you do it. Lord, what do you want me to know about myself? Lord, I'm having a hard time holding a job. 
I think it's because of persecution. But maybe, if I ask some friends, maybe there's just some things in, in how I am with people or a judgmental attitude or something that just makes me not the best team member. And after a while, people get hard. Or maybe I'm, I'm seeking after this area of, of employment or occupation, and you've had me over here all along. And so I'm done banging my head against that wall. Just help me provide for my family. Help me to glorify you. Help me to just have my management be pleased by what I'm doing. Lord, you lead me. I'm happy to be breathing right now. I don't have to worry about my career. You guide me. Lord, what do you want me to know about you? Lord, what do you want me to know about me? That, Lord, help me to understand what you're doing in my life and in this way. If we would do that, if we would know that, then God will bring us into his holiness. Don't let the bait of Satan, don't let offense get any bigger. Stop it now. Some of you, if you're hearing this, you already know the situations that, that are coming to mind. God is bringing those to your mind. He wants you to do business. So rather than going home or going to work tomorrow and, and you know, putting more fuel on that fire, you've got to come up with a different plan. What's that plan? That's God's plan. The plan that says, you know what, I'm sorry for my part. Forgive me for just kind of always being um, defensive or insecure. Believe me, sometimes we're at our toughest, we're our most aggressive when we think we're going to lose something. But when you're in Christ, what are you going to lose? You might lose your pride. He wants you to lose that. But you will gain his approval. You will gain his, his pleasure. He, can, he loves us always, but he's not always pleased with what we do. But you will please your Father as you go before wherever you are, serving him humbly. We can go on and on. Time doesn't allow us to do that. But I just want to close with this. Would you make a commitment in your heart to say, Lord, let your word promote health in my life. Thank you, Lord, that you're actually using hard circumstances to bring health. Lord, by your power, would you prevent, it, prevent the disease of isolation, the disease of resentment, the disease of despising things, the disease of, of, of separating from you, the disease of, of causing offense, of giving offense, and of being offended. Lord, I don't want to play Satan's games anymore. I'm not going to take that bait anymore. By your grace, Lord, I recognize it as a hardship. I recognize that you're shaping me to be more like you, to participate in your holiness. Lord, I submit myself to your will. As we say that in each situation, as you go home today, as you get up tomorrow, if he gives you tomorrow, as you say that in each and every situation, he'll say, that's my boy, that's my girl. That's what I've designed you to do. You won't know. You, there's no telling what I'm about to do in your life in the years ahead because you just say, you're my dad. You know what's best for me. I'm just going to follow you, dad, and I want to make you proud. I want you to be like Leopold Mozart, just bragging on me, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen?